Well, we uh, start a new series today, about which I'm very excited. Uh, it's, we're going to spend the next eight weeks in the book of James uh, in a series titled Faith That Works. And it, it's an apt follow-up, I think, to Easter and this, this great Christian claim that confronts the whole world that Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, that we do live in a world where a resurrection has happened. And the book of James is an immensely practical book. It, it kind of um, focuses on the outworking of uh, Christian faith in real life. It kind of answers this question. If you really believe the claim of resur- the resurrection of Jesus, that is, if you really believe the claim, what will, what will your life look like on a day-to-day basis? Or what could it look like? And this, this series answers that question. The series title, Faith That Works, has a double meaning, and I, I borrowed it from a commentary by the same title written uh, by Kent Hughes. Real faith in Jesus is faith that works for the one who believes. I mean, it works in the sense that it makes a very real difference in your own life. It changes you, and, and I, I venture to bet that those who've been following Christ for some time can attest that while not easy, it's a better way to live than not following Jesus. And real faith in Jesus is faith that works on behalf of others. Real faith makes a difference in the world and it makes the world better for all people, where it should. So faith that works. In these eight weeks, we'll read the entire book of James, though there's so much in here we won't be able to focus on all of it in in just an eight-week series. So we'll pick a focus on the passage of Scripture for each week and and, uh, spend our time there. And as we begin the series, just a quick note about James himself. There, there are a couple people at least named James in the Bible, so we have to ask who wrote this thing. And the traditional understanding is that it was written by Jesus' little brother, uh, the, the brother of our Lord Jesus. And if you put the pieces together in the Bible, that makes for a very interesting background story. Think of it, a book written by Jesus' brother. He grew up with Jesus. He ate at the same table. He played in the same places. He knew the inner workings of their family life. He knew all the tantrums. Did Jesus have tantrums? That's that's another question. (laughs) He knew it all. He's an insider. Right? Think of that. And it seems he was late in coming to faith. Look at what uh, John says in his gospel. For even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. Huh. The scripture also says that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to James, this from 1 Corinthians, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And that seems the pivotal moment in the life of James because after that that experience, his life took an entirely different turn. Uh, James was present for the picking of the replacement apostle to replace Judas Presumably, he was present at Pentecost in Acts 2. He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and he chaired the great Jerusalem council that that considered, you know, how the faith applied to Gentile people. And he became known as James the Just because of his excessive piety. Uh, The historian Eusebius records this. James used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling. And, and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God, kneeling 
and asking forgiveness for the people. So from his excessive righteousness, he was called the just. So when that guy wanted to write down what it meant to follow Jesus in everyday life, this book is what he wrote. So that's kind of a big deal. And today's focus is the reality that Christians will face trials and testing and suffering in life. It's not a matter of if those things come, it's a matter of when. And, says James, as people who believe the claim that we live in a world where a resurrection has happened, we can have an entirely new perspective on those trials when they come. So let's listen to the scripture. James 1, verses 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Believers in hum humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to all who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. What a lovely scripture reader. <laughs> Thanks, honey. That's my wife, by the way, if you didn't know that. 
So the, the, uh, the pagan religions of Jesus' day all focused on a kind of um, religious transaction, which was if you bring your offering, you know, the hope is that that deity or deity of choice would deliver some sense of protection or sheltering for you from all, all of the challenges of life. But what James says here is, uh, look, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to suffer. You will encounter trials that will test your faith. You will suffer because Jesus suffered. I mean, following Jesus means participating in his sufferings. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Yay, Easter. And participation in his sufferings. Yeah, Good Friday. Becoming like him in his death. It's not a matter of if you will face trials in life. It's a matter of when you will face trials in life. So what is a trial? A trial is a difficulty, a challenge, a temptation. James says there are many kinds of trials. There are a variety of forms. They can take different looks. Uh, It could be a direct challenge to your faith, something that causes a deep doubt that threatens your belief. It could be the death of a friend or a spouse or, or even a child, the loss of a job, significant financial loss, a, a health challenge, some, some kind of crisis that emerges out of nowhere. There are many kinds of trials, and James says that they will test our faith. Literally, that word testing refers to the process of refining, or, or it has those connotations. It, what it means is that the trials will actually test the genuineness of one's faith. I mean, the challenges will judge whether the faith was real because you really can't fake it through suffering. It's it's one thing to say that you believe something. It's another thing to actually believe something. And I I know I've talked to people, and I'm sure you have too, uh, who have walked away from their faith because of a very painful experience in life. And they say that they, they just can't believe after that trial, after that suffering, because they just can't believe that God would do that to them or that God would allow that or something like that. that that's exactly what James is talking about here. In his, but his point is that even before the trial, what was called faith by that person might not have been faith at all. You know, that the trial will test the faith, will prove the genuineness of the faith. I, th- I think sometimes maybe it gets back to what Jesus said. Remember in his explanation of the parable of the sower, He said this, others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The Bible talks about these things, trials, troubles, uh, and suffering as a kind of furnace in which our faith is either refined, you know, made purer and stronger, or, in extreme cases, proved to be dross, proved to be a cheap knockoff. Really, at the beginning, no faith at all. The furnace of suffering will judge a person's faith. First Peter and Hebrews talk about this. This is not an unfamiliar concept to the Bible. Uh, look, Look at this from Isaiah. God said this. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. 
trials will, will test us. And James is saying these trials will come. It's not a matter of if they come, but when. They will come and they will test your faith. And, and on the flip side of the person who has a very painful experience and, and says that they need to walk away from their faith, on the flip side is the person who has the tremendous trial but suddenly sees their faith come alive. Just like, whoa, I really believe it. The trial tested the faith and proved it genuine and solid. You know, trials do that. And James says, if we believe the claim of Easter, if we really are Easter people, believing we live in a world where a resurrection has happened, we can have an entirely new perspective on trials and troubles and suffering. Here's what he wrote again. Look at this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, now right at the beginning, we got to call time out. Wait, wait a second here, James. When we're in the furnace of affliction, how are we supposed to have joy? And what's that? Is this masochistic? Is this some kind of Bobby McFerrin theology? Don't worry, be happy, right? Don't worry, act like the trial, the pain, the suffering isn't there because you're a Christian. Just act like it's not there. Just be happy. That idea prompted one commentator to speculate on how James' letter might have been received by his readers. Oh, how nice. A letter of encouragement from Pastor Wacko. I mean, what, what does he actually mean by this? Because in the midst of trial, we don't feel joy. We feel fear and anxiety and uncertainty and sorrow and maybe a bunch of other not-so-good feelings. But James did not say feel joy instead of those other feelings. What he said was consider it pure joy. Count it joy. Chalk it up on the tally board as joy. So what he's, what he's talking about is the intentional setting of our perspective. You know, considering something as pure joy refers to us setting our perspective on it. It, it's the choice of the will. James is saying Christians, uh, to Christians, when trials come, and they will, when trials come, take the perspective that, that God is refining you, burning off the dross and leaving only the pure gold of faith left. And, and James goes one step further and, and tells us what the testing is actually producing. Did you see that? Uh, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Now, in, uh, in the original Greek language, that word translated perseverance is a fantastic word. It's, in Greek, the word hupomeno, and it means to stand your ground no matter how tough it gets, to be steadfast, consistent, unwavering, and unflinching. It's, it's a word with determination. It's this, I, I will not let go, I will not move, this is where I stand. One other commentator put it this way, it's, it's the attitude that declares, I don't care how heavy the load gets or how much pressure I'm under, I'm not budging one inch. This is my spot, and I'm telling you right now, there isn't enough pressure in the whole world to make me move and give it up. That's a great word, isn't it? Um, 
in one of the kind of dictionaries I was looking at, it compared it to a military, it used a kind of military image, and, and in that sense, it was the picture of soldiers ordered to maintain their position in face of fierce opposition. So recall the, like the scene from the war movie, right, where the captain says to the lieutenant, lieutenant, hold that line. No matter what comes at you, hold that line. We are all depending on you. Do not fall. Be, be steadfast. No matter what comes, do not move. Not one inch. Great word. You can feel it, can't you? The power of it. Hupomeno. Stand fast. So what James is saying is, look, trials test your faith, and that testing is a refining, a purifying that makes you stronger and creates in you a hupomeno kind of faith. A resolute, determined, steadfast, and unwavering faith that no thing and no one can shake. It's a Psalm 46 kind of faith. Remember that? God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. You run that through the Bible decoder ring and you get, even though my whole life is falling apart, I do not fear. Even though everything from a worldly perspective looks hopeless, I have hope. Even though everything around me is shaking and quaking and surging, I have a peace that passes all human understanding. Hupomeno. And, and look at what James says. Let, let hupomeno, let perseverance, let steadfast faith finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, this, this perseverance, this steadfastness will finish its work and bring maturity and completeness. And in this context, the word mature refers to a person's spiritual life, a kind of finish line of faith, not the finish line of life, but, but a completedness to one's faith. And what it's referring to is that, that, that place where you're standing immovable in your faith in our Lord Jesus where you have a hupomeno kind of faith, a Psalm 46 kind of faith. And the word complete in this sense refers to being equipped for anything life might throw your way. Mature, a finished kind of faith, and equipped. And in a very real way, we know this. I mean, the difficulties and trials that we've experienced, if someone else experiences something similar to that, if, our, if that trial has tested our faith and refined us in such a way that we've been made stronger from a faith perspective, the, the scars are still there. Don't hear me wrong. It still hurts. But if that process has happened, we now can help people who experience a similar thing. And more than that, said another pastor whose sermon I listened to on this text, suffering, a trial like this, equips you to do almost everything you do in life better because you bring to that moment, to that experience, a whole host of faith-building uh, trials and, and testings that have built you into the person you are now, mature and complete, equipped for everything the world might throw at you.
One commentator wrote this, it's, it's commonly taught that trials bring maturity, but it is not so. Rather, fortitude and perseverance in times of testings produce maturity. And this gets to the idea that a trial is a crisis. And the, the Japanese word for crisis has two elements to it, danger and opportunity. It's the refining. It will either purify and make stronger or burn off. And, and that's what the next part of the text is. At least that's what I take it to mean. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. The person, uh, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. This, this passage is often quoted as a, a general appeal to if, you know, if you lack wisdom generally, generally just, just ask God and God will give it to you. And I, I think that's a good thing, right? But the context of this verse is wisdom for times of trial and suffering. That's what James is writing about. And we, we seek this out when times are hard. You know this. We do this. Something uh, gut-wrenching comes our way and we, we pray and we read scripture and we talk with friends and we're, we're seeking God for wisdom. We're asking God for wisdom. Wisdom isn't just knowledge, right? Wisdom is understanding for living. And when we ask God for wisdom in these variety of ways, praying, reading scripture, talking to other believers, seeking counsel, when we ask God for wisdom in the midst of trials, we're looking for an understanding for living that goes beyond earthly wisdom we're acknowledging that we can't figure it out. We're no longer depending on our own reason because it's way, way beyond us. We're seeking revelation. We need something from the Lord. We want God's perspective on things. But James says that when we ask God for wisdom, for understanding, for living, from his perspective in the midst of trials, we need to believe and not doubt. For if we doubt, we'll be tossed around like a wave in the sea because we're double-minded. Now, I think this, this verse has long been misunderstood. It, it's, it's almost like some Christians have interpreted this as like you have to keep repeating in your head, I will not doubt, I will not doubt, I will not doubt. And that, that is just not realistic. We all have doubts, right? That, this isn't the, the absence of a psychological experience. What, what that, that phrase double-minded means, it's talking about having dual allegiance, it's not just the, the doubts that rifle through our mind. It's, it's, uh, it's a bit like, like Jesus' story about uh, the wise and foolish builders. Remember the wise builder built his house on the rock so that when the rains came up, it stood solid. And the foolish builder built his house on the sand so that when the rains came, it was, it was washed away. This is getting, about, getting to the foundation of your life. Double-minded means having dual allegiance. It means you built your house and half of it's on the rock, but the other half is on the sand. And if, if we're totally honest, that's us. That's probably most of us here. We, we know and trust Jesus. We do. But there are other things we trust too, aren't there? 
And, and, and it, it's, it, it's, we're talking ultimate allegiance here. Right? Can't, sometimes it can be Jesus and our retirement savings, Jesus and our ability to figure things out, Jesus and our reputation and good name, whatever, you can make the list yourself. But then a trial comes. Not just a small hardship, the real deal trial. The cancer diagnosis. The loss of a career in such a way that it's never coming back again. The relational reversal that is absolutely devastating to you. And that trial shows you something about what you really believe, the, the foundation upon which you're really standing. Uh, th- th- this idea of being double-minded or having dual allegiance, the image that came to my mind was the uh, you know, uh, cottages out on Lake Michigan where the dune erosion is going. And we've, we've seen these videos of, in worst-case scenarios, like the houses falling into the lake, you know, it's a big mess. But my, my understanding of the building code out on the lakeshore these days is that if you build something within so many feet of the shoreline, it has to be built in such a way that it can be dragged. You can unhook the house from the foundation and drag it to a firmer foundation. See, what James is saying is if we let it, the trials which test our faith will drag our house off the sand of our double allegiance and onto the rock of Christ. And it's it's a fascinating thing. For centuries, churches conceived of their primary job as preparing the members of their congregation for death. We hardly talk about that anymore. The, the way we prepare ourselves for death is to engage, one of the ways, is to engage the trials of life fully to allow them to pull our house all the way over to the rock. All the way. That we might say with everything in us, on Christ the solid rock I stand. And when we're there, it's the hupomeno kind of faith, right? It's the mature and equipped for everything. It's what the Apostle Paul says. I, I labor with everything in me to present everyone mature. This is what he's talking about. With this kind of faith where we can say, I, I am standing on Christ and I will not be moved. It's a great word, hupomeno. I love it. It's inspiring. Think, so so if, if you could think, I had my own illustration, but think of yours, right? The, the movie, the book, uh, the story, um, uh, a, a fairy tale, science fiction, fantasy, where, where the courageous hero is charged with standing in the gap for the protection of others against insurmountable odds. Surely they will be overwhelmed, but they stand. They stand firm. Think of the best example you can come up with and I'll better you one. Because we've got a much better example. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let us run with perseverance, hupomeno, that's the word there. For the joy set before him, he endured, hupomeno, the cross, 
scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured, hupomeno, such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus endured the cross. He stood fast on the cross. Why? In the full wrath of God against sin and injustice poured out on Jesus on the cross. The punishment for all our wrongdoing poured out on Jesus so that he might pay our debt, a debt we couldn't pay and a debt that he didn't owe for the purpose of redeeming us, which literally means buying us back for himself. For that purpose, Jesus was resolute, determined, steadfast, and unwavering. In the moment when Jesus looked up and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had to feel like everything was lost. But he stood fast for you, for me, for the whole world. So, when trials and challenges and suffering in life comes your way, and and it all will, we know that, stand fast. What does that look like in very practical terms? It means when it's super hard to go to church, keep going to church. Don't leave the community. When it's really, really hard to believe, keep showing up and let all of us believe for you for a while. It means keep on with what you were doing before. Keep loving people. Keep serving in the name of Jesus. Stay and keep at it. Stand fast. Stand fast out of love for the one who stood fast for you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we, we do thank you and we do give our whole selves to you. You, you gave everything for us. You stood fast in absolute darkness for us. The sun had gone down, there was no light, yet you stood fast. God, pour out your spirit on us. Help us grow to be like you that we might not just stand fast against spiritual opposition in our life, but that we might stand fast for those we love. That we might stand fast for our church family. We might stand fast for our city. That we might stand fast for this world. And, And yes, Lord Jesus, that we might even stand fast for our enemies. Only possible by your grace and your spirit in us. Make us like you, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you stood fast for us. We pray in your name. Amen.